Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Tim the Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, May 19th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. The continued refusal of repentance by Judah and Jerusalem will lead to great destruction, over which Jeremiah laments in anguish and pain. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome to Sharper Iron. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is a fun text that we're going to be up to our eyeballs in this morning, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to, to doing battle with it. Now, no, nothing like giving an Isaiah scholar a Jeremiah text. Okay. Reminding me of how how different Jeremiah is than Isaiah, which is my normal frame of reference when I'm doing biblical studies. So I actually, yesterday I was listening a little bit to one of a uh, previous paper that you had given at a symposium there in Fort Wayne concerning lament. And I know that paper was on a lament in Isaiah, but it, it seemed like maybe a, an appropriate topic to talk about briefly just in terms of lament, because lamenting is something that's a big deal in Jeremiah. And we get a little bit of, a little bit of it in our text for today. What can you tell us about lament in the scriptures and in Jeremiah as well? Yeah, so one thing I really do try to balance here when I teach, I, I teach Old Testament, but I still have at least a half a foot, if not two-thirds of a large foot in the pastoral care area, where lament really is the biblical language of what it means for us to live, live from a perspective of faith, but when faith is confused because what reality looks like just just doesn't work. So I just I've been just got done actually writing a paper. Hopefully, I'll get it published someplace on the issue of lament to a death denial culture, where I actually look at a different Isaiah text, Isaiah 38, Hezekiah's prayer. That's called hyper obscure. But but the issue is, how do we deal with a world like our world right now? Doesn't do death really well at all. We do everything in our power to uh, hide behind every mask we can, whether it's achievement, medical hope, take your pick. But what lament does for us as Christians is one, it just really unmasks reality for what it is. It gives us, it lets us know that life is awful and we live in this valley of the shadow, but also transforms us through these prayers to really, oh, to really have hope in Jesus as we really do look for that resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Yeah, uh, lament is something that we as Christians probably don't do well. Uh, we're, not, we're not comfortable necessarily talking about bad things and unpleasant things, but it's the language that Scripture really does give us as we wrestle with suffering. Yeah, and, and Jeremiah is going to give us some of that language today. There's there's going to be sometimes, and one of them is in our text for today, where mm -hmm. that language of lament, I think, makes us uncomfortable as Christians today. We, I mean, it's all, it even strikes me sometimes as almost impious the way that he will, it sounds like complaining, and I think we're prone to think of it as whining. But like you said, this really is the language of faith, I've heard it put this way that it's it's crying out to God our no that that you know we see this and we we know what He says in His Word in Sweden and no this is not the way it's supposed to be Lord and so what do we do with that well we we cry out to Him in faith and certainly that's important for pastoral care as as you were saying and for our lives as Christians to have this language of lament and so Jeremiah definitely gives us some of that as as you said 
to, to get us into this text a little bit, you, you called it a, a fun text. I've, I've been talking to the, the various guests as, as we've gone through Jeremiah. I'll say, how's Jeremiah going? So, well, it's, it's fun. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that about such a, a, you know, a book that's full of condemnation. But I, there, there is certainly good word from God here as throughout the book of Jeremiah. You, you being an Isaiah scholar, dipping your toes now into to Jeremiah, I appreciate that. What are some of those distinctives of Jeremiah that will help us as we prepare for this text today? Yeah, one thing that really strikes me, and this is where, uh, yeah, again, Isaiah is my frame of reference. Uh, when I deal with the book of Isaiah, I feel like I've never actually met the prophet. He shows up occasionally, and we get to kind of know him, Isaiah 6, 36 to 39 a bit. But we really get a feel for this prophet far better than any other prophet of the Bible. Ezekiel is kind of close, with some a couple weird meals and a few other odds and ends. But we really understand what it means to to be called to proclaim a important message, a vital message for God's people, but it's a message that's going to meet utter opposition. So I really like the fact that we get to know this guy. It's so different than the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, I feel like I've spent 18 years in the book, and I barely know the guy. I know his book, but I don't know really the person. But Jeremiah, you know, this guy is a wonderfully vivid. He gives us what life is like. And you're right, it shows up a couple times here, and elsewhere he goes much further in terms of Oh, here's what it's like, and yeah, he's brutally honest, to use language used a little bit earlier. It's almost, it makes us uncomfortable because it seems impious. And the kicker is he never gets condemned for talking that way. Certainly something for us as, as Christians, I think, to hold on to in those moments when we need to lament, to look to Jeremiah, to see the language, even to make use of it ourselves. So let's start jumping into this text. We've got quite a bit for us today. I'll read a little ways through. Again, we're in Jeremiah chapter four, beginning at verse five. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, Courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. I'll pause there. That was through verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter 4. Dr. Teets, the The text that we've got today starts off with this message that Jeremiah is to declare in Judah and Jerusalem. And it sounds like just great destruction is coming. What is this this opening poem, this opening declaration we've got from Jeremiah here? Yeah, it's utterly terrifying. So I I quipped at the beginning, it's fun. Only fun because it raises a lot of interesting challenges for us. I mean, what does this mean for for us to be this to be part of the Christian Bible even? So one piece to really consider as we start now looking a little bit more verse by verse is to keep in mind that Jeremiah, when he's talking about what's coming to Jerusalem, also has the final cosmic destruction in view. There's an eschatological trajectory throughout this entire chapter we're looking at this morning. That he's going to talk about bad stuff happening to Zion, bad stuff happening to, to Jerusalem. But in a similar way to how Jesus preaches in Matthew 20, what, 24, in the eschatological discourses, 
is that what's going to be happening to this city is but a foretaste of the feast to come, which is probably bad use of our liturgical language, I realized. So... that's, I mean, there is, you know, sometimes I think we forget that, that the salvation that we rejoice in, this is the, the opposite of if God is going to save us, mm-hmm. then he also must defeat our enemies. And and sometimes, as as we are seeing in the book of Jeremiah, the enemy is is us. We're the ones mm-hmm. that need, we need our sin defeated. Yeah, and, and it's a big piece. Uh, and whenever we talk salvation in the prophets, uh, New Testament, sorry, prophets, uh, force of habit, that's just where I spend most of my time. Uh, is that there's always this element of somebody being destroyed. Is that you can't complete, that there's always somebody outside where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And here we end up having this pretty vivid language. I mean, I'm looking at verse 5 right now. Or, yeah, I mean, it is, well, how many different verbs can you throw in here? I know verbs, sorry, grammar, bad habit. But it is all these imperatives, and you can almost hear this gathering tumult, especially in verse verses 4 or verses 5 and 6, where everybody is gathering and there is absolutely no hope. And this infamous from the north here in verse 6, you can almost hear the dark and scary music. Who is coming from the north? We we see that phrase a lot in Jeremiah. He He won't always name the particular enemy that comes, but it is out of the north. What What is it? Why the north? Yeah, this is oh, this is a time where I guess this doesn't work too well on radio. A map would be really handy. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that doesn't play too well on radio, I realize. <laughs> is that uh, when you think about the Levant, think about Israel, Judah, that region, they live stuck between two major powers. On one hand, to the, uh, to the southwest is Egypt. And then the other issue is always the Mesopotamian powers. And unfortunately, the way the Mesopotamian powers uh, want to get to Egypt, and that's their goal. Uh, Egypt, Egypt is the good stuff. It just so happens that Judah, Jerusalem, Edom, Moab, take your pick, all those people just happen to be in the way. So your invasion route is always going to be basically up and over from the Tigris and Euphrates, down, up and over, and then down, I guess it would be southwest. So you can't you can't cross the desert to get to Egypt. Uh, that's just not recommended because horses have a way of dying. Mm-hmm. So that it's always the invasion route. Invaders are always coming from the north because that's where the roads are. Whether Assyria, Babylon, Persia, take your pick. So, and I mean, by using that language out of the north, rather than identifying the particular army, Assyria, Babylon, whoever it may be, is that part of Jeremiah's way of, I mean, that, that's how this preaching ends up functioning, not only for the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, but also to cause us to think about, you know, in times things, the, the ultimate judgment that's coming on the last day. Yeah, and that's a really good point you uh, you just made, is that the identity of this invader is kept deliberately ambiguous. Uh, it may be, it's going to be Babylon for Jeremiah, but it's also looking for, yeah, it's looking for uh, repetition over and over again. So, I mean, take us into this this picture that we've got here. The first couple of verses are, are saying, alert the people because destruction is coming. Then the, the destroyer is pictured as a lion from the thicket. And then this is going to cause great lamentation. One of the, the questions that I had that I'm, I'm just not sure, maybe it's the English translation that's causing me the trouble. Verse six, raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not. Is, 
is Jeremiah telling them to go to Jerusalem for safety or is he telling them to leave Jerusalem for safety? Yeah, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, uh, this is where I love discussions like this because you th- see things that I just never noticed. But uh, looking at this, first uh, first issue is the issue of the NACE. The issue of uh, standards seems to be sort of vague. Uh, probably, and uh, Thompson in his NICOT commentary, which is a really good resource right now, uh, talks about that as being possibly a warning banner. He gets so far as to speculate being like a fire signal, which almost sounds, what, Lord of the Rings, when they are lighting yeah. the fires to warn that Gondor is being invaded. There's an obscure, obscure nerdy reference for the afternoon, morning, <laughs> or whatever time it happens to be. Is that uh, here, uh, don't stand, in other words, don't stand around, uh, hide, and this language is repeated. See the warning, go hide, and go take shelter. This is almost, to use a good Midwestern analogy, it's the tornado sirens going off. So speaking to your question, probably here, the idea of not standing is to uh, not stand out where you're going to be vulnerable. Instead, hunker down, shelter in place, or to use whatever current metaphor we don't like to use anymore. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, I think the reason I asked that question is because I'm just reading ahead in chapter six, there's going to be the call to get out of Jerusalem. You know, chapter six, verse one says, flee for safety from the midst of Jerusalem. And then thinking, too, of, you know, as you brought up, Jesus eschatological discourse is in times discourse in the Gospels and how he tells his his disciples to get out of Jerusalem Mm -hmm. when the destruction comes. It just I mean, it strikes me that. And thinking through Jeremiah, how the people have been placing their trust in false hopes, you know, whether that be Assyria or Egypt or themselves, that Jerusalem becomes, at least I think eventually, it becomes this place where you think you're going to be safe there, but you're not. You're, and ultimately, the positive side of that would be the only refuge you actually have is the Lord. Yeah, and, and the other piece along those lines, yeah, in terms of false refuges, and we actually see it here. I I see verse six. I see Zion, and I have I can rattle on Zion for a while. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't do it. Uh, Jeremiah's view of Zion theology is oh, subdued is probably the nicer way to describe it. Uh, extremely negative is probably a little bit more accurate. Where he's dealing with the people who have took taken these promises and utterly perverted their understanding. Where he's taking these ideas of Zion is never going to be violated. Zion can never be conquered, and instead, and the people and. The people have said, look, this means we can do whatever we want. And Jeremiah's answer is, not so fast. Stay tuned. Jeremiah 7 is going to talk about this a bunch, mm-hmm. where Zion is no longer God's city. It's just another city that's going to be destroyed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at one point, I think it's coming up in this chapter, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, no different than them. I mean, the, the people have, and that's because they're worshiping these false gods. They've made themselves mm-hmm. like the nations around them. So looking, looking as the text continues, just into to verse nine, Jeremiah names officials, kings, priests, prophets. We've we've seen him single these out before. It's, I mean, I think the picture is that the destruction is is total. It's not, and it's going to affect the people that maybe think themselves above the destruction. Is is that perhaps what's going on? Yeah, a couple of pieces to consider. Well, first of all, kind of going back, if I can go back two verses, I can't resist. Sure. you got a lot of lion language here in verse 7, which is a stock image for, for warfare. Uh, lions in the Bible are, you talk about well, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. Uh, lions are really awful. Uh, this is the language of warfare. Uh, lion also possibly sounds very Babylonian in terms of some of their artwork. 
And you go from a uh, lion, scary image of warfare to uh, no matter what they're going to try to do, uh, Lament Whale put on sackcloth is probably uh, too little too late. Who knows if, it, if it's even genuine. I do like the word sackcloth, by the way. It's Hebrew that we all know that we never knew was Hebrew. Uh, we call it sackcloth not because it has anything to do with a bag. It's just the word in Hebrew is sack. That's transliterated. But that does set us up really well for verse 9, where, yeah, if you look at everybody involved, uh, this is that utter comprehensiveness. Uh, first of all, don't forget the first three words uh, in verse 9. It's, uh, but, or, but Yom Hahu, in that day, I always get excited about the word that, which uh, probably means I need to find better things to get excited about, I guess. But but this, uh, uh, whenever I see that language, uh, but Yom Hahu would be the Hebrew in that day. Uh, that's always talking big, eschat- big eschatological day of Yahweh. Uh, whether it's this one that's coming very soon for for Jeremiah, but also looking to the big Bayom Hahu at the end. But yeah, then you then you start looking at you look at that people group, and it is absolutely wild uh, because we go from from the Melech from the king, which uh, wink wink nod nod. That word Melech is in the Melech as when it's being used that way is generally a pretty negative term. Uh, Melek will be positive when you're talking like it's if it's Melek what Melek uh, Josiah okay King Josiah title, but the moment I say Melek already I have the it's not the good word for king, it's it's the bad word, it's the uh, Melek who tried to oh, which means the people are trusting this human leader instead of God, but then yeah then you go from king to officials, and then uh, and yeah even the prophets who Jeremiah is going to be tangling with soon. Yeah, nobody can escape. And this idea of this coming destruction, and this again points us to the eschatological trajectory of the entire text, uh, there is no room to hide here. Yeah, every, 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 every seemingly secure socioeconomic class is, is, is toast. You don't well, have to give me a happy ma- text. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> there is, there's at least one verse coming up later that says the end is not complete, or it's, you know, it's not a full end. So there's, there is a hint. Yeah. In, you know, these, <laughs> these first several chapters of Jeremiah you know, have that same flavor to them, that it is, you know, this is the pe- preaching of repentance, destruction is coming, and it's going to get, I mean, it's going to grow from, from this text. This is only just kind of dipping the toes into it oh, as yeah. Jeremiah's imagery really grows. And as you're saying, you know, no one, no one escapes from this judgment that's coming. And that, that includes Jeremiah. And that certainly becomes clear as the, the text goes on. And it's there in verse 10. And this is one of those places where I was, this was the particular verse I was referring to earlier. How do you, how can Jeremiah say this again? Verse 10, ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem saying it shall be well with you. Whereas the sword has reached their very life. And it's, it sounds like Jeremiah is accusing the Lord of, of lying. Again, that, that sounds impious to us. What, what is going on with Jeremiah's complaint or lament here in verse 10? Yeah, um, it, it, it is. When you, and I had the same reaction that you did. When I'm, oh, here I'm dealing with a text that I've never really dealt with before. So I'm doing kind of the piecemeal translation thinking, oh, and then I get to this and I, I'm having one of those yikes moments. Uh, yeah, but, uh, we have for crying out loud, we even have uh, aha is the Hebrew word, which means oddly enough, aha in English. And what he, 
the question is, what is he actually referring to here? Hmm. Uh, you deceive this people. Uh, one of the possible ways of explaining what he's complaining about is probably what's going on, what happened during the during Josiah. We're dealing when we deal with Jeremiah, we start with the Josianic Reformation. But what's so odd, and I frankly ruined a student's day probably back in February when I was teaching this here at the seminary, is that for all of the hype we want to give Josiah, uh, Jeremiah has, oh, I think, to, to quote my teenage son, whatever, in terms of Josiah, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. he's probably referring to this brief moment of false hope where Josiah seems to be getting everything in order, uh, but Je- Jeremiah, for somebody who did his ministry during the Josianic Reformation, uh, he, frankly, like his contemporary Zephaniah, has this really just blasé attitude to, uh, he kind of gave us a glimmer of false ho- a glimmer of hope, but the reality is, is oh, there's no there's no real change with with Josiah, and what I love about this, and uh, and again, you get the shock value of verse ten is is impressive, and we and we we and and the problem is you cannot actually weasel your way around it. You can't Victorianize it here. Yeah. Is that uh, from his perspective, he is complaining to God. He, Oh, God allows him and invites him, and for that matter, us, to when we see things that are happening, to actually to bear our soul. Uh, he's, I mean, how do you, how do you take the tone in verse ten? Uh, he's not really whining. I would almost hear anger. I don't know. How, how do you hear his? How do you hear his emotional tone in verse ten? Well, yeah, I mean, I think anger, I think anger fits that, you know, coming up here and we haven't gotten there yet, but in verses 19 and following, he talks about his anguish or his heart beating wildly, a, a desperation. I mean, I guess I, I think of, you know, trying to think through pastoral practice, those those moments of of utter tragedy where, where I mean, just like you look at the situation and, and say, Lord, how could you let this happen, uh, particularly in view of his promises? And I think sometimes... In, and, and maybe this is just me, but in our reaction against the prosperity gospel that, you know, if you're a Christian, it's all going to be great for you. I mean, certainly we know that that's not true, but sometimes I think in our reaction against it, we we forget that God has made many great promises to his Christians. And when we look at our lives, sometimes those li- those promises, just we don't see them. I think that was the language you used earlier that, that you know, the reality that we face just doesn't match up. And so it's, I mean, I think we could use words like this too. Like, Lord, I'm looking at my life and I, I think of Christians that, you know, like they struggle with daily bread. Lord, you told me to pray for daily bread and you said to say amen at the end of that prayer. Why don't I have it? Why have you lied to me? I mean, I like, that's how I could see a prayer like this coming out in the lives of Christians today. Yeah, and I, I cut my teeth doing, uh, I did three units of clinical pastoral education. Two of them were at St. Louis University Hospital doing trauma one. So I, I did a lot of cultural violence, a lot of s- seemingly senseless death. And you hear a lot of anger, and what I've learned is anger, the problem with, with a person's anger towards God is it can freak me out as a pastor. That's the, really the only problem. Because if somebody's angry with God, it means there's still a relationship. It's a relationship that they're struggling with. But there's hope when there's still there's there's hope in the anger. It's the person who's indifferent. Uh, that's terrifying. I, I don't care about God anymore. I'm utterly indifferent. Uh, that's a, from a pastoral standpoint. That's utterly terrifying. Here it's it's anger, meaning we have something worth we have something worth fighting over. 
and there's a relationship at stake. And being able to just be comfortable enough to be able to just burst out like he does here in verse 10. I mean, for me, that is just so comforting that I have a God who is willing to deal with me where I am, just like he dealt with Jeremiah. Yeah, and, and I think that's something that, that we certainly need to, to hold on to and maybe even recover as Christians today. Because what else, I mean, what else are we going to do with that anger or the, I mean, that despair, whatever it is that leads to an outburst like this, what, what else can we do with it other than to take it to the Lord, the one who, I mean, who knows it's there anyways, and the only one who, who can deal with it. And as you said from the outset, you know, the Lord doesn't get mad at Jeremiah for, for these types of confessions, as they're sometimes called, he, he receives them. Now, he doesn't always give perhaps the answer that Jeremiah is looking for or an answer that, you know, is satisfying maybe to what our logic would want. But he, but he does hear him and he does sustain him by the promise and, and, we'll, and, and by the word that he continues to give. And just, I mean, just kind of looking as uh, we'll get to more of the text on the other side of the break, but just kind of maybe this is a way to, to segue into it. That, you know, he says, Lord, you've deceived the people. Well, one of the things I think that the Lord does in answer to that is, is he continues to give Jeremiah the word to proclaim so that the people would know what's going to happen and that they could repent and believe. Exactly. The answer to any of these complaints, and God never actually gives Jeremiah an answer. Uh, and that's true even in other books that are a little bit more lament-centric, say, for example, Habakkuk, yeah. where God's answer is to always continue to give them the word and to shift their perspective towards hope without ever telling them the answer. There's no, never any good answer to theodicy. Instead, it is recognize that I'm God, you're not, and I'm still taking care of you. And that's mm -hmm. the process of this, this whole lament here. And uh, we'll see how the Lord continues to give Jeremiah his word on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're looking at Jeremiah chapter four with Dr. Ryan Teets. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Hi, I'm Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. As Lutherans, we strive to grow in Christ in our daily lives. Take time this summer to join us for our summer webinar series titled Growing in Christ. You'll discover how to grow strong and healthy physically, spiritually, and mentally, and finally put it all together in how you can serve your neighbor also. Check out lcef.org webinars for more information and join us this summer. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 19th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 through 31 with Dr. Ryan Teets. He's assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, we left off at verse 10. I'm going to read farther into the text so we can keep talking about this fun text from Jeremiah chapter 4 this morning, beginning again at verse 11. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. 
Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. I'll pause there again. That was all the way through verse 18 of Jeremiah 4. Dr. Teets, the, the opening image that we get in this section is this hot wind, and it's not to winnow or to cleanse. It's too big for that. What's the picture Jeremiah is giving us here? Oh, it is, it is the nasty desert wind. So you think about, there, there are all kinds of winds. Winds have the purpose. And yeah, the, the kicker, though, yeah, it's the, to, to, not winnow, to not winnow or cleanse is really the kicker. This is not. Uh, this is a scorching desert heat that you can't escape from. So this actually goes back. We already talked about this a little bit earlier in terms of this comprehensive destruction, and you cannot escape. You cannot escape it. Uh, interestingly enough, it's towards the daughter of my people. You'll notice this is a new term, at least in this pericope, where this is. And we got to be careful on how we discuss this a little bit. But what's going on here is this is God doing everything in his power to transform and bring his people back. This is not vindictive. This is not capricious. But there is this relationship that's at stake that God is trying to bring back with that language of daughter of my people. That word my people is super loaded. Ami, my people. Uh, yeah. This is, this, is not, this is not just some random act. This is God using extreme measures to try to bring the people back. Yeah, I mean, every time we hear that language in Jeremiah, that my people, as you said, that is very loaded language. And I, I, my mind goes back all the way to Exodus, where, you know, the Lord tells him over and over again, the goal of all this is so that you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And I mean, we've, we've seen, you know, tastes of that in Jeremiah already. The main image that's been used is the Lord as husband and the people as his bride. And of course, they've been unfaithful in that. But constantly he's calling them back. And even in the midst of these texts like this that are full of the judgment and destruction, that, that language of my people, I think, is a reminder of what the Lord's purpose is in all of this. He's not destroying them for the sake of destroying them, but ultimately to call them back to himself in repentance and faith. Yeah, that's one of those words just to file away, or I guess uh, words or word in, in Hebrew, I mean, my, my people, is just such an important term. Whenever we see that language, you pick it up, you mentioned it really well here, where this is, this, they're, not, they're not a goy, they're not a nation. Instead, this is all of God as, oh, here, father, child, uh, we can talk about uh, husband, wife l later, in terms of this, this pleading all done within the context of this covenantal relationship. And and the people, no matter what God is doing, they are stubbornly refusing to repent throughout all of this. As the text continues into verse verses 13 and following, we get more of the picture of the destruction that's coming. You know, he comes like clouds. You get chariots, you get horses, the woe in verse 15. You know, you've got that voice going out again. Something you said, and I think just with the conversation we've been having as as it says in verse 13, you know, he comes up like clouds, his chariots, his horses, thinking back to the lion in verse seven. And again, that this this enemy is coming out of the north. I, I want to I, I just I wrote this down as I was pondering this text, the, the he of verse 13. Should we think of the he as 
Babylon? Or should we should we even see in that he, the Lord, that Yahweh is the one who's behind this as well? What do you think? Uh, yes. How's that for a very easy answer? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was, that a, was that too too cheap of an answer? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, God is behind all of these all these dynamics, and we so that he. And my initial reaction would be he would be would be Yahweh himself. However, there's you do there was a however coming. Is that whoever this? But it is this this nebulous, scary invader from the north. And what, if you look at verse 13, what struck me as I was looking at verse 13, that chariots like a whirlwind, uh, swifter horses, the kalal there, for the word for swift. Uh, when I was reading that, I was having Habakkuk flashbacks, which not too many people have, I guess. But uh, yeah, uh, these are occupational hazards that some of us, these are, these are the crosses exegetes have to bear sometimes. Uh, but it's remarkably similar language to actually to the invader from the north in Habakkuk, which is actually which is also the Chaldeans actually come to think of it, right? Where yeah, it is this, and Jeremiah is talking about one invader, but there's always the the final destruction is in view, and we need to, and we as Christians reading this text need to really keep those allow those to exist really side by side. And now in verse 14, the, the Lord, it seems, interjects for a moment, which I, I think this is a, another one of those moments of, of hope that it's not all destruction. But in verse 14, in the midst of this description of who's coming and what's going to happen, you have this, this call back, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within that question? How long? That's all, yeah. I mean, that's a, a question of lament here. It's almost like oh, the yeah. Lord is participating in it. Yeah, and it is this, and you almost probably need to hire a personal injury lawyer to get you through this text to uh, sue Jeremiah for whiplash, because he does go back and forth periodically. And that, yeah, you have this brief moment, brief moment of, hey, there's still time to be cleansed, there's still time to to repent that, I mean, that, yeah, the advertise, the how long uh, will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Uh, how long are you going to do this? Uh, there's uh, part of this, at least the way I hear verse 14 a bit, is you know, oh, God is the almost exasperated parent. Where why are you why are you being so dumb constantly? I'm sorry. Hopefully, dumb isn't too shocking for our hearers. But he's just shaking his head, thinking, "Look, I'm giving you chances. I'm doing everything I can. Yet, how how long are you going to keep making these bad choices?" Hmm. One of the things, again, going forward in this this text that I've just noticed right now, and I'm not sure why I didn't pick up on it earlier, in verse 16, as we were talking about the end times nature of this, in verse 16, the command is to warn the nations that, again, he is coming. Who's who's that he again? The, the fact that it's to warn the nations, not just Judah and Jerusalem. You know, back in chapter one, Jeremiah is called to be a prophet to the nations. Again, all of this is, is adding up, it seems to, to be, this is more than just what happens in 587 BC or the, you know, the exiles that the small exiles that come before that. But this is a matter of, you know, end times language that this is the call to repentance and faith for everyone over their sin and, and to come back to the Lord. Yeah, and that's really important. Uh, uh, something I've become more and more convinced of, and this is a line that I use often in my often in my classes here at CTS. Uh, all theology is eschatology is a line that I use quite a bit when I teach. In that we need to always be reading these texts in light not only of Christ's first coming, 
but also being very, very aware of Christ's second coming. A text like this really is focusing much more on second coming uh, than first coming. And you're right, yeah, the nations are involved. This isn't just, it really stinks to be in Jerusalem in 587. But this is a lookout. This is God's larger plan that's being being enacted for the entire cosmos. Uh, before we move on to the next section, Dr. Teets, anything on verses 17 and 18? Um, really scary. Oh, scary. That's, yeah, it is. Uh, we need to acknowledge the, the troubling nature part of this, where there is this, I mean, we even verse 15 uh, everything's from the north. Uh, Dan and Mount, Mount Ephraim, all the bad stuff comes from the north. But you see that there really is, yeah, you look in verses 17 18, where this rich language of the people are besieged and and it's thoroughly justified. Yeah. And, and I think, especially looking at verse 17, because she has rebelled against me, uh, really does probably speak more to that he of the invader really being Yahweh himself using agents. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you said, this is something, you know, the, that's because she has rebelled your ways, your deeds of verse 18. This is why this is happening. As the, as the text continues, we're going to get to hear Jeremiah uh, break in again with the pain that this is causing him. So again, we're picking up now in verse 19. I'm just going to go ahead and read the rest of the text so that we get it all out there and we can discuss it as, at our at our leisure, and at least until the music starts. So <laughs> Jeremiah 4, beginning at verse 19. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you, they seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. That is the rest of Jeremiah chapter four. Yeah. So Dr. Teets, if, there, if there's ever a moment ahead. where you say, this is the word of the Lord, yeah. you have this awkward pause because people don't quite know how to respond. That's right. That's right. This is a, a tough end 
to a, mm-hmm. to a tough text, we, we get a picture of Jeremiah's own, you know, participation in this judgment that, that he experiences all this destruction verses 19 through 21, you know, my anguish, my anguish. Again, Jeremiah is crying out to the Lord. What is, what's he crying out here? Oh, uh, because at the end of the day, he cares for these people deeply, and he and there's nothing he can do to stop it. And I mean, I'm looking at verse 19 right now, and I mean, the English translation does a decent job, but the Hebrew is even more gut wrenching. It's my eye, my eye, ahulah. You can almost hear the. Uh, it, it's we we render it as my anguish, my anguish, because we have to put it in English. But it's almost these inutterable cries of pain here in the Hebrew. These are not common words. It is. He's looking around, and as much as he sees all the problems, and as much as he as he's going to experience a, a fair amount of persecution, stay tuned later in the text. We've already been warned about it uh, earlier in Jeremiah. Is that this isn't a this isn't a boring, abstract, theoro- theoretical thing that's going to happen. Uh, this is happening to people that he cares deeply about. He loves these people, and then what has he seen? He's seen them. Oh, he's seen all kinds of awful things that are going to happen to him, and he can't stop it. And I mean, you talk about pastoral angst. We we get this wonderful picture here of Jeremiah of just bawling his eyes out for the people. Yeah, I mean, it really is a a, a very it is a picture of a of a pastor. Does this does this come up in in seminary education for the men who are preparing to be pastors? How you know you you preach the word of God that sometimes is you know, the law, the judgment that's coming, and yet the great angst anguish that you have for the people whom you love that you're serving. It is so important to keep in mind. Uh, I mean, and something I really do try to emphasize when I when I teach I teach pastoral care in the Psalms and and the and oh, I it just it comes out in my teaching just very organically for the most part. It, it's, it's one thing to talk about a text like this, and we and we can we can sterilize this text in a very academic discussion. Uh, Jeremiah is not letting us do that here. Is that when you look at a lost world that doesn't know Jesus, that is falling apart? Our hearts should be absolutely breaking, and and crying on behalf of them, just like Jeremiah does here. I mean, I I love his tears here because they're the tears we should be shedding when we do everything when oh, we faithfully proclaim the word, we reach out to people, meet them where they are, and still and still they oh, stubbornly refuse, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. This is hard on, hard on us as pastors. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I mean, I think of, you know, plenty of, of faithful Christians in, in the parish who who see maybe a family member falling, falling away, falling into sin in a situation such that, you know, it's, it's not just the anguish of pastors, but I think the anguish that every Christian, the whole church experiences looking at the world around us, looking at, at those who, who once gathered with us as part of the, the holy church. And, and yet we, we see them falling away. And I think there's you know, those, as we sometimes call the inactive members, or that, that same sense of anguish, I think, is felt not just by the pastors, but by all Christians mm-hmm. for those who, who have, you know, fallen away into, into the kind of idolatry that Jeremiah is preaching against. Yeah, and even our language of inactive is pretty sterile. As opposed, I mean, what yeah. would be a better way to describe it? Uh, oh, people doomed, or I don't know how you, what language you'd use. And... And this is where, I mean, as I'm just looking at these, what, verses 19, 20, and 21 here, uh, it's, it's uh, it, in English, it sounds like he's bawling. In Hebrew, it is, 
oh, if you've ever, I mean, I'm sure we all have, the somebody who is sobbing in and cannot be consoled, and the words are just almost tripping out bits and pieces as they try to express what's going on. Uh, that's actually really the sense here, especially verses 19 and 20. It, it sounds very pretty. It's poetic. Fair enough. But he is almost tripping over his words because, I mean, he, he is utterly, utterly devastated by watching what's happening. Yeah. But the Lord does not let his people off the hook. Uh, verse verse 22, uh, I think you asked, is, is the word dumb too too much for, for our radio? No, it's not. <laughs> okay, good. I, Jeremy... I, I, when, you read, uh, when you read that out loud, I breathed a deep sigh of relief. I was going to use the Greek word idiotes to get myself off the hook. So I was, I knew I was okay. Yeah, that's well. I mean, you know, verse 22, the Lord is quite, quite direct. You know, this is what's going on. My people, they're, they're stupid. I mean, they just, yeah. they just don't know any better. Um, I mean, this is, or, this is a, a thing yeah. we see throughout Jeremiah. Yeah. And some biting sarcasm for good measure. They're wise. I mean, there's your teenage sarcasm for good measure. Yeah. What are they wise about? It actually doing anything that being very unwise. And, the, and this language of, and we see it here, we saw it with father-daughter, so father-child. And, and this is a tension, a rebellious uh, son language is actually a bigger deal in Isaiah. That, look, I, I'm the father, you're, you're the child, we should be, we, ha, we, ha, we have the ways we should be operating. And instead, no matter how, how much I taught them, and this is Jeremiah, he's building on the train of many prophets who've gone before him. And for crying out loud, no matter what has happened, they refuse to be taught. I mean, you can sense the exasperation too of the of the I think the father child yeah. image here. I mean, imagine you know just this is in, in human terms. You know, a father who who sees his children repeatedly do things that he has told them not to do. And then they suffer the consequences for it, just the, the exasperation such that, I mean, it's it's strong language, stupid children, but it is language that comes out of the love that the father has for his child and how much more the love that the Lord has for his people. Yeah, it's, it's not name calling. It, it is the, I mean, as, as a parent, there are moments where I just shake my head and it's very similar. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, guess what? This isn't going to work for the 80th time. And just shaking it, and just shaking my head. Yeah, and, and I mean, so there's the the Lord. You know, he he's told his people repeatedly, as you said, Jeremiah is not preaching this for the first time in the, in the history of, of Israel, and so he he comes and and the Lord just exasperated. Why have you not listened? Why have you not such such foolishness? Now the the language of this text continues to just grow in its striking nature. In verses 23 and following, where you get this repeated, I looked, I looked, I looked. I mean, particularly verse 23 gets it started. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. And as it goes forward, this is, I mean, I think Jeremiah is describing, this is basically creation coming undone. Yeah, a vivid use of Genesis 1 here is what he's doing. Oh yeah, I mean, we even have. I mean, that it's the uh, oh, formless and uh, without form and void is, is what the English has it. It's the hene tohu vavohu. Yeah, the tohu vavohu. That is vintage Genesis one verse two language. Uh, yeah, everything that should be in order is that we are now reduced to pre-creation. Every all the entire ordered universe is now completely undone. And if you look at it, it's yeah, a lot of the language is just taken straight out of Genesis one here. To, and it's the anti-Genesis one. 
Well, even even the language I looked and I I didn't mm-hmm. go and look in the Hebrew to see, but it, this is how I mean, when the Lord looks on creation in Genesis one, he sees that it is good and ultimately very mm-hmm. good here. When Jeremiah, I'm assuming he's the, the eye here when he looks, it's not very good. It's it's all I mean, everything is coming undone, which, again, this, I think, points us to the the bigger picture of this chapter, that this is not simply about the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, but it is about, you know, the, the end times and the, the ultimate judgment that comes on the day of the Lord. Oh, uh, completely. And yeah, especially here, starting yeah, really verse 23 onward. Uh, oh, and ver- oh, take, take a look at verse 27 as trying to be mindful of imminent music in a, in a few, in a few minutes at least. That's right. But the, uh, yeah, the whole land, uh, it's the, what Koha Eretz there, the whole land is now completely caught up in everything. And it's this utterly un, utter undoing that is cosmic in scope. This is not just Jerusalem getting utterly utterly destroyed here. Mm. And and yet, and since we do have we have about five minutes, Doctor Teets. So with that, with verse twenty seven, I mentioned this earlier. The Lord does promise there, I will not make a full end. Again, in the midst of this cosmic language about destruction that's coming, there still is hope there for the people. The, there's always the remnant. Uh, so, I mean, this is so what actually what Jeremiah is probably doing here is that he is to describe the coming, the coming final destruction, final judgment, uh, Jerusalem again, but a, uh, but a foretaste of the feast to come. Uh, he's actually now going with another example of cosmic destruction, namely, namely the Noah story. And, and Noah also, the whole world is destroyed except for the ark. And this language of the remnant is always preserved. Although here, I mean, you've, you and I have been talking about this now for the better part of the hour. There aren't too many glimmers of hope, so we'll take them when we get when we can get them. But that the remnant is still preserved in the midst of this. Right. I mean, and there. So again, as as Jeremiah is lamenting, and as there are faithful people of God in the midst of Jerusalem and Judah, as they too lament, there is this promise that. Hope is to be found in the Lord, in the very one, and this is perhaps the mystery, the one who brings the destruction for his people's sin is also the only refuge that these people have for any sort of hope or salvation in the midst of that destruction. He he brings this so that he might save them from it. It's, it's kind of, I think it's mysterious to us, but this is the, he is the only refuge they have. Yeah, and being being content as at least as content as we can be of just letting that stand attention, where the and yeah. where there's always the remnant, which is both wonderful gospel and kind of depressing law. Uh, I'm so glad that God, that there is a remnant. Unfortunately, it's only a remnant, but mm-hmm. clinging to the hope that yeah, the remnant is preserved. All, we're almost back to Elijah and Mount Horeb, where he goes through, huh, put an end to me because I I'm no better than my ancestors, and the answer is don't worry, there's still a remnant. In the last several verses of our text, verses 28 through the end, it, we have more language about the nature of the destruction, the horsemen, the archer, people running away, seeking shelter wherever they can find it in thickets and rocks. The cities are forsaken. Uh, among some of the things that, that I think are a bit new that, that we have, what we haven't yet looked at is in verse 30, where where the the desolate one the lord says to the desolate one what are you doing dressing up this is all in vain i, I well what what's what's jeremiah getting at there oh yeah a couple of things come to mind uh, 
Yeah, what uh, when the invaders coming? Don't dress like that. Uh, back to the uh, them, be, them being foolish. Uh, instead of uh, hanging on and resisting the invader, they are welcoming. They are vividly welcoming them in. The other way, so that's one way to view it. The other thing is that, I mean, they are in spite of all this destruction that's coming. They are, they are going on as usual. Uh, engaging in a life of every distraction as possible to avoid hearing this message of repentance. So as we think of the, this pastorally again, which has been, this has been part of the fun, being able to really see some significant pastoral implications of a text that well, maybe wasn't quite as fun as I thought it was when we started. But this idea of, in our secular age, every, everybody uses distractions in order to avoid the reality of God's word. And we see almost something very similar here. Uh, distractions allow us to avoid, avoid the reality of coming mortality. And that seems to be what the people are doing here. And, and yet that mortality will come. I think that, you know, verse 31, that's how this text wraps up, this cry of the woman in labor. You can you can try to avoid it, but labor does come eventually. Mm-hmm. And and for this labor, what's coming is is death. You know, woe is me is the cry of the people. And I appreciate the way that that you put it. We can try to dress this up, but but that's the reality. And and again, the only refuge we have is Christ in all this. We've got about a minute here, Doctor Teets. Final thoughts on the text, and especially for us as Christians, how do we make use of a text like this today? Oh, one, we really use this as our language of what it means to say when we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I mean, this is this is scary judgment. For us as Christians, we hang on to the fact that we are the called remnant, and that in some ways we want evil to come to an end, and, and we, we, we need to be honest about that. The other piece that we've seen a couple times here is that in the midst of all of these sufferings, and they're not, these are awful, these hurt, the reality of pain, is that God gives us this language to, be, to bear our souls, crying out in pain, knowing that God doesn't reject us, but instead God continues to strengthen us through his word. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. Dr. Teets, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on the series, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the KFUO app and use the open mic feature there to record up to a 60-second message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.